Welcome to the Gospel Ministry of Exchange Church. Thank you for connecting with us for our Bible talk today, and please feel free to share these talks with others as well. It's our desire to connect people to Jesus and grow people in Jesus. To find out more about us, please visit our website, www.exchangechurch.org.au. We've been going through the book of Jonah over the last two Sundays, and now we're up to Jonah chapter 3. Um, sometimes it takes a significant warning to bring about change in our lives. Maybe you might go to the doctor and he might notice a spot on the side of your face or on your back or your arm. He says, oh, I'm not so sure about that spot. And he puts his magnifying glass out and has a look under that and says, oh, I think that could be the developing of a skin cancer. But up till now, you've sort of, oh, I'm not too worried about getting out in the sun. I don't worry about putting a hat on, no sunscreen. I'm just pretty chill to soak up that vitamin D. I don't think too much about it. But then when I go to see the doctor and he recognises that, that could be a skin cancer there and possibly develop into a melanoma, well, when the doctor warns me of the dire consequences of these things, of letting this go without getting it checked out, that this could be fatal, ah, with that warning, things change, don't they? All of a sudden... I'm a different person as I think about what the doctor has just told me. Well, today in Jonah, we're going to see God issue a warning to Nineveh. And through that means of what God's chosen to do there, God will produce a beautiful gift of repentance and revival will take place in Nineveh. So we're going to see that today. So go to your Bibles and uh, we're going to pick up the last verse of chapter 2 and then read all of chapter 3. Starting at verse 10 of chapter 2. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, and from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they, how they turned from the evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Lord, thank you. Thank you this morning that we can come and open up your word. We ask and pray that Holy Spirit now, as we just think about uh, what you're teaching us through Jonah chapter 3, through the life of Jonah, through your work, Lord, in the hearts and minds of people in Nineveh, that you're going to show us repentance, what it is to turn from sin and to turn towards the Lord. Please help us this morning to see that repentance is a beautiful gift of the gospel in transforming our lives. 
God, I pray that you would help us to be a repentant people. Lord, we ask that. We pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Jonah is full of twists and turns, isn't it? Uh, Jonah's called by God to go to Nineveh and to deliver a message. What does he do? If you go back to chapter 1, he refuses and he runs in the opposite direction. He goes to Tarshish. God stays on Jonah's case, though he doesn't give up on him. God sends a storm to threaten the ship that he's travelling on as he tries to flee in the opposite direction. Jonah is then tossed or hurled overboard by his instruction that this will calm the storm if you throw me into the ocean. And the ocean calms. As Jonah is sinking beneath the water, God sends a whale along to swallow Jonah whole. He spends three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. At the end of those three days and three nights, Jonah has this aha moment. All of a sudden, it dawns on him. He's both helpless and hopeless. Surprising, it's taken him three days to work that out. But he's worked out that there, at that spot, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the key verse out of uh, chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 9. God rescues Jonah. Now, as we just saw in verse 10 there at the end of chapter 2, don't you love the way the Holy Spirit says it? God spoke to the whale. God spoke to the whale. In other words, God directed the whale and said, I want you to head to this beach and I want you to vomit out Jonah, spit him out, expel him. I was just thinking there, imagine if you were sitting on that beach... And this whale sort of just comes up and it sort of nearly beaches itself and then, gee, it pops Jonah. (sighs) Maybe I've had too much Sunday or something, I'm not sure. Pretty crazy, but simple little details like that, God sovereignly rules everything. Fish included. There's not one thing that is not under God's control. Chapter 3 is like the start of chapter 1 again. Jonah, go to Nineveh, God says. I think he's finally got it. Yes, Lord, I'll go to Nineveh. And he does. Perhaps a little bit extra context might help us here to think, well, why did Jonah maybe rebel the first time? Uh, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Uh, Assyria is a pagan nation to the east of Israel. Uh, Hence, Jonah went to go west. Uh, Assyria is actually an enemy of Israel at this particular time. And they'd already made some initial raids on the land of Israel and caused them a bit of grief and havoc. This is probably one of the reasons why Jonah doesn't want to go there. They're the enemy. Who wants to go and actually, you know, deal with them? That gives a little bit of context, perhaps, why I didn't go there. But we'll see some more reasons why I didn't go there next week as well. So today we're going to see a very sovereign move of God in revival here with the people of Nineveh. And this is where we'll be travelling. That The fruit of the gospel... The fruit of the good news of Christ, the fruit of the good news of the Lord, is a repentant heart that turns from evil and turns towards the Lord. Turns from evil and turns toward the Lord. Let's pick up the story here from when the whales just spat him out on the beach and he's actually gathered himself and got himself organised. He's heard the word of the Lord again, go to Nineveh. It's about a two or three week journey from the coastal area there to get to Nineveh. So sometimes you read the Bible and think, well, did that just happen the next day? would take Jonah probably at least two or three weeks to get across to Nineveh. So plenty of time for him again to sort of contemplate and think and reflect about what's happening here. Back in chapter 1, we've already seen that their evil ways are seen by God and Jonah is sent to Nineveh to let them know God's not happy about that. He's not happy about that at all. Now, 
here's a good thing to pick up. There's not a thing that God isn't aware of or doesn't see in the universe. God sees it all. God knows it all. Even when you or I may be behind closed doors in our house think nobody knows what I'm doing here, God does. God sees everything. Nothing escapes him whatsoever. Nineveh, you cannot hide from God. God's seen it. Jonah arrives at Nineveh here in verse 3 and we're told it's an exceedingly great city. It's a big city. It's a large city. It's actually three days' journey in breadth. So maybe that means it takes three days to fully explore this city of Nineveh. And we're going to find out in chapter 4 next week that it's more than 120,000 people live in this city, which is a big city back in those times. Three times here, roughly the size of Shepparton. Then in verse 4, as we continue this on, we see the start of Jonah's ministry, which is a eight-word sermon. Are you ready for it? Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city and going a day's journey, and he called out, count the words, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was the message. Eight words. Now you're all wishing, gee, I wish Todd would do an eight-word sermon some days. We'd get home a bit earlier maybe. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be flattened. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be smashed. That's literally what the word overthrown means there. Yet 40 days and this city's going to be crushed. Now I don't know, but just maybe Jonah liked that message. They're the enemy after all. This is a message of God's judgment. They're going to crush the city. We're going to raise this to the ground. But imagine what a sight Jonah must have been in Nineveh. Here's this foreigner, because he's a foreigner to these people, walking around proclaiming that his God, Jonah's God, is going to judge this city and in 40 days it's going to be smashed. Now I was trying to think, well, what, how might that look for us? And I was trying to think, well, who's the enemy for Australians? So I have to be really careful here when I say this. Maybe it's like a person from Russia. Possibly they're an enemy. We don't want to see them in any, but possibly it's like that. And they come to Shepherd with this really thick Russian accent and they walk around the streets of Shepherd and saying, the God of Russia is going to crush this city in 40 days. Now you imagine if you saw that or heard that, you would think in the natural, you would think, who the heck do you think you are coming all the way from there and telling me that? Are you for real? Would, do we, you expect us to take you seriously? Are you okay? Is there something wrong with you? Or will we just laugh and ridicule and mock at him? Or would someone just want to just take him out the back and shoot him at the same time? If you think about what would happen there if someone like that, the foreigner, come and gave that message for yet 40 days and this place is going to be crushed. Well, here's the response to this eight-word sermon in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God just doesn't make sense, does it? In the natural, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. What's that? That's nothing short of a sovereign move of God in revival. An eight-word sermon of judgment and God does that. They believe God's word. The people of Nineveh listen to this eight-word sermon on God's judgment And their hearts are moved by the Lord and they believe that he is true. Not only that he is true, but his word is true. God is going to crush this city in 40 days. 
They've gone from a pagan people worshipping all manner of gods that they may have there and now they're believing in the one true God from this one simple message. Just a couple of quick thoughts here on that. God isn't showing us, as it were, a blueprint or a template here on how revival sermons should look. Eight words and all about judgment. So we're not, it's not meant to be that. But having said that, we must never, ever shy away from God's judgment in sharing the gospel either. We must never, ever shy away from that. The coming judgment of God is an important and vital part of the truth of God's word. It's all through the New Testament. It's there. So we should never shy away from it. It won't necessarily be our lead-in thought for a conversation with somebody. You're not going to start with 40 days and your house is going to be crushed by the God who's going to judge you. That's not the way you're going to start a conversation with somebody. But it should be somewhere in the mix of how you explain who God is over time with that person you're meeting with. Now, unfortunately, the church in general has somewhat shied away from this biblical truth. It's like we just don't want to talk about judgment. That's just way too hard. But it's here. It must be talked about in a careful and sensitive way, but a true way that's part of the gospel message. Now, the people of Nineveh not only believed in God... But they've also demonstrated this heart change that's taken place with this belief as well. And we see this actually demonstrated through the king of Nineveh. Uh, Jonah's sermon's been buzzing around town and now it actually gets to the king. He hears about these eight words as well. And now the king also, from the greatest to the least, he believes in God. And what we see here with the king, he begins to issue this really heartfelt attitude here of repentance. To begin to kick this in, as it were, with the people of Nineveh. It's a half that attitude of repentance. Now, what repentance is, is a very powerful sign of genuine conversion and revival. Something's really happened in this heart of mine that's actually drawn me down the path of repentance. Now, you might be thinking right now, I'm not sure what repentance means. I've heard of it before. It sounds like it's a really old word out of the Bible. Here's what repentance is. It's defined as a change of direction, a change of mind. It's a turning around is what the word repentance means. In the biblical sense, it's like this. I've been living my life in this direction all my life. It's been all about me. But now I'm going to turn around and live in a whole new direction. In other words, in that sense of the gospel, I've been living in sin. I've been just doing whatever my heart wanted to do. No holds barred. Go for it. But the Holy Spirit's given me a new heart and now I turn around. I don't want to live that way. I now want to live for the Lord. It's like this 180 degree turn. It's a change of heart. It's a change of mind. It's a change of direction. Now what I want us to do is just spend a few moments here thinking about how does repentance look as it's demonstrated for us in this chapter. Before we get there, though, I just want to put a little qualifier here so we fully understand the idea of repentance. We don't carry out the work of repentance to earn or to merit our salvation. Really clear that we understand that. We're not doing this to gain God's acceptance. It's not like if I do enough repentance... 
enough turning, enough changing, enough redirection, somehow God will notice how good I've been and how much I've changed and somehow I'll impress him with that, that now God will decide to save me. No. No. It doesn't work like that. From the vantage point of the New Testament, we understand that the finished work of Christ, the finished work of Jesus at the cross, achieves our salvation for us. It's all what Christ has done, nothing that I could ever possibly do. I'm now justified or I'm declared fully right before God by faith in the finished work of Christ. That is where my salvation is based upon. So repentance is actually a fruit or a byproduct of that salvation. I'm saved by Christ, the Spirit gives me a new heart, and now the fruit of that and the product of that is I live a new life, I change direction. So let's get that really clear so we don't get that mixed up here. Repentance is the fruit of salvation, not the basis of our salvation. It's the fruit, not the root. Let's see how this repentance works. In verse 5 by the people and verses 6 to 8, there we see a proclamation by the king where there's talk of fasting, there's talk of wearing sackcloth, and there's talk of sitting in ashes as well. You may be asking, what is all that about? Sackcloth, is that a new clothing brand from the Iconic? No. All those aspects of fasting, sackcloth, ashes, they're signs of mourning, they're signs of grief, and they're signs of sadness. So when the king takes off his royal robes and puts on sackcloth, which is like this really, like putting a sack on, that's what it's like, this sort of hard, coarse cloth material, he's actually demonstrating um, there's a mourning taking place, there's a sadness taking place, there's a grief taking place. In a, in a real sense, this is the very first aspect of repentance, of this changed heart, of this renewed direction. The people of Nineveh are mourning over their sin before the Lord. Now, no doubt, Jonah probably used a few more words than just those eight. Why is this judgment coming, Jonah? Because the Lord's seen all of your evil. All of a sudden now, they are becoming aware of their sin. They're becoming aware of their offence before Jonah's God. So true repentance... This true change, this true, true turning around of direction of our lives will be to acknowledge and to own our sins. It's me. I'm the guilty party. I'm the one who's done it. True repentance has this understanding that our sin is namely against God, primarily, and offensive to a holy God. That's where true sin starts. Out of my heart towards God. And if the Holy Spirit has given us a new heart, we're not going to run away from or make excuses for our sins. In other words, we don't get into the blame game. It's not my fault, it's that person's fault. They caused me to do it. It's not me, it's not from my heart, I'm not evil, there's nothing wrong with me, it's actually them who are influencing me. Now there may be contributing influences, but the core of that comes from our own heart. A repentant heart, a humble heart, is now made sensible to our sin. It's sorry primarily towards God, because that is where sin first takes its place, is against a good and holy God. But we're also sorry towards those we may have sinned against as well. 
Sorry to God and sorry to those who we've hurt and who we've offended. But here's what sin will do. Sin will try and cover its tracks. Sin doesn't like to be exposed. Sin will deceive our own hearts and tell us it's not really that bad. God really doesn't treat sin all that seriously. You can just sort of sweep it under the carpet and it'll all be okay. That's what sin will try and do in us. It deceives our thinking, it deceives our hearts and says it's not really that bad. Well, the king and the people of Nineveh, they got a real revelation of sin and they got a revelation of God's attitude towards sin and they got that in the word, 40 days and Nineveh will be crushed. They understood how serious sin was and how serious towards sin God is. Nothing is swept under the carpet, nothing is small, nothing is minor. It's offensive to a holy God. And we don't have to hide anything from God because, as we said before, we cannot hide anything from God. We just need to be honest and own it. And you know what happens when we're honest and we own it? It's very humbling for us, but it's also very liberating. Because otherwise we carry it around and we're just hiding it all the time and we're pretending it's not there and just making it like, I have no, it's not me. But the moment we actually come out in the open and own it and confess it, it's like there's a weight off my shoulders. I don't have to hide this any longer. It's a liberating thing to do, although a humbling thing at the same time. Firstly, in repentance, we've got to own it. It's my sin. I'm the guilty party. I'm the cause. Second, we've got to actively fight against sin as well. Have a look here at the end of verse 8. The king says this, to uh, the last half, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Because of the realisation of what your sin means and what Jesus has suffered for it, a changed heart in repentance, turning around, will now turn away from sin and fight against it. I'm no longer going to do that. The king's asking everybody here, change your ways. Don't live the way you used to live. Do away with the violence in your hands. Do away with your evil deeds. Turn from that. Now change isn't easy, particularly when it comes to dealing with the sinful nature. Sin is so ingrained within us, it's a natural part of our fallenness and our brokenness within. It just nearly come straight out. You may have been caught out doing something wrong and someone's actually calling you to account. Could be at work, could be at school, could be anywhere. Sin tries immediately to to hide itself by urging us to tell a lie and deny that I was ever involved in that activity. It just comes out like that. It's like it's the first thought in your mind, just lie, just deny it. That's sin's work in our heart. It's evil and it's corruptive. But in repentance, we are actively engaged here in fighting against that desire to keep living sinfully. We're trying to put it to death. We're trying to squeeze the life out of this. So, so don't be shocked when your mind is in this uh, attitude of repentance and you're wrestling with these broken, uh, broken desires within. So don't be shocked with thinking, why am I getting that thought to lie? 
Why am I getting that thought to be jealous? Why am I getting that thought to steal? Why am I getting that thought to be you know, critical at this point? It's just there. It's just in us. And the wrestle is because of the changed heart, you're wrestling with that desire. You want to fight against it and you actually want to crush that evil desire that's wanting you to lie and go that way. A good sign, a really good sign of genuine repentance is that you are engaged in that battle. If you're telling me you're a believer and you're not having a fight with sin or a fight with sinful desires, you're just rolling along and life's all good, hmm, not so sure about that. You should actually be in a battle. The fact is that indwelling sin or our corrupted sinful nature will be with us for the entire duration of our life on earth. Now, I know that's bad news, but the good news is God provides everything we need to overcome that. So there will be a lifelong struggle with sin. Prepare for the long haul in that. Don't be shocked. It'll come perhaps in seasons where it's really intense and there are other times where it just feels a little bit easier. But that's the work of repentance. It's dealing with that ongoing battle of sin and fighting and pushing back and turning from that and not yielding to it any longer. Perhaps here our greatest weapon in repentance and fighting against sin is to get a bigger vision of who God is. And that's what we're doing today as we open up God's word. We're getting a bigger vision of who God is. We need to get a vision of God's loveliness. We need to get a vision of God's beauty and wonder and glory, the holiness of Christ, the splendor of Christ, and through the Holy Spirit's power, that'll take a long way, take us a long way in defeating sin in our life by seeing a bigger and bigger vision of who Jesus is. That helps us. Now you might say, why do you say that, Todd? It works a bit like this. The more we love something or the more we think something is valuable, the more I'll be committed to caring for it, looking after it and providing for it, not letting other things destroy it. Here's an example. I love my wife and I love my daughters and I love my son. I'll work super hard to protect that relationship. Real hard. I won't let anything get in, the, in between me and them. I love them. I care for them. I want to protect that with all I've got. I have a neighbour down the road, though. I only see him once every so many years. Now, I get on well with a guy, but I'm probably not going to work as hard to protect that relationship. That doesn't mean I don't like him or love him, but there's a different connection. Something I love more, something I'm more attracted to, something I find more value in, I'm going to work real hard to actually keep that relationship intact. So if I get a bigger vision of who Christ is, his glory, his wonder, his splendor, his love for me, all those things that make God seem lovely and wonderful, the more I get a vision of that, the stronger it helps me to protect that relationship. I don't want anything to get involved there that will separate me and the Lord. So something I treasure and love, I'll protect. Get a bigger vision of God, and we want to protect that. We don't want nothing to come in the way of that. As we do here, to get this bigger vision of the Lord, we open up his word and we actually see what he does. And that grows a vision of Christ. So we fight against sin in repentance. We actively fight against sin. But we also do this. We turn towards the Lord as well. True repentance is not only turning from sin, it's got to turn towards something. Otherwise we might do a 360 degree turn and just go back on sinning again. We've got to turn towards something else. Now look at the first half of verse 8 and we see what happens here. He says this, this is the king talking again, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. 
The king says, call out mightily. Don't whisper. Don't just sort of, you know, have a bit of a yawn and then call out. He's saying, give it all you've got. Call out. In other words, leave your sin behind and now turn towards the Lord. Call out mightily to God. Turn towards the Lord. Now, we get a really, really beautiful picture of this turning from sin and turning to the Lord in Acts. Paul there is before King Agrippa and he's giving a defence of why he wants to be going to Rome and all these things the Jews are accusing him of. And Paul gives this vision here that is received of Christ and he says this is what Jesus told him in Acts 26 verses 17 to 18. This is Jesus speaking to Paul and he says, I, Jesus, am delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, Paul. Jesus says, I'm sending you. To do what? To open their eyes so that they may, look at these words really carefully, so they may turn from darkness... Interesting, that's what the king of Nineveh is saying here. Turn from darkness to light. Turning from one thing to another thing. The light of the truth, the light of the gospel. And Paul says it again, to turn from the power of Satan, living in sin, to turn from that to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Just lays it out real clear there, doesn't he? Turning from one thing, turning to the other thing. This is what true repentance does. With a change of heart and a change of mind, we don't want those old broken things anymore. Our heart's new. It doesn't want to go after those things, even though our heart will sometimes residually still want to maybe have a desire for that. But we have at the same time this other set of desires. We now know what we want. We want what we've been made for. Namely, Jesus Christ. That's what we want with this new heart. We want to serve and love Christ. So we actively turn from sin and we turn to the Lord, our maker and our redeemer. So so what is this repentance here as we see this demonstrated through this chapter? Really, it's the beauty of Jesus Christ. It's the beauty of the gospel here shining through. It's the power of the gospel to redeem us and to restore us, not leave us the way we are. The finished work of Jesus does a number of things for us. The first one it does, it actually does take away the penalty and the punishment of sin completely, satisfied in Christ by his death on the cross. That's what Jesus does for us in the gospel. There's nothing else to be done with our debt of sin. It tells us in Colossians that debt has been cancelled. It's finished. But that's not all that Jesus achieves for us at the cross. He achieves other things for us at the cross as well. Paul tells us in Romans 6 that sin will no longer have dominion over you. This is what God does. He breaks the power of sin at the cross in our lives. We are no longer held captive or slaves to sin. This is the new heart and the power that God's Spirit gives to us. So, jealousy doesn't rule over me where I despise people anymore. It might still want to rise up, but I crush it. But before that, jealousy would rise up and I just despise people because jealousy just filled me with bitterness. No. With a new heart, I learn to love people and I learn to appreciate them as made in God's image. That's what repentance does. Pornography doesn't rule over me 
hopelessly controlled by lust, treating others as objects or pieces of meat. It doesn't do that now. It might still be residual within me to some extent, as in trying to burst out, but it doesn't rule over me. Jesus has broken the power of sin of the cross. The Holy Spirit works in me self-control. To control those things and to put to death those desires. The Holy Spirit tells me that sex is a beautiful gift in the safety of marriage. It's not wrong. It's got to be in the right place. Or crushing self-image and appearance anxiety doesn't bind me up in despair. It doesn't rule over me. This whole idea of anxiety and self-appearance and all these things. It doesn't rule me. It might still try and rise up from time to time. The Holy Spirit reminds me I'm created in the image of God. In repentance, my identity is found in Christ. That's where my value and my worth is. Not in what the world thinks about me, not in what TikTok thinks about me or any other social media platform. It's about what Christ thinks about me. Repentance renews that within me. It breaks the power of sin over my life. What is this? This is the power of the gospel working through repentance. This is the transformation that people long for. You might have seen over the past few weeks, new year, new you. That's a bit of a catchphrase you see going around. People are longing for this change. They're longing to see things happen. They want to see the brokenness that they're in. They want to see this change and renewed. They know they're addicted to these life, uh, these life addictive problems that just keep pulling them down the same pathway. They're tired of living the way they do, but every time they try and break out of the rut, they just seem to fall back into the rut again. But the gospel's different. The gospel actually comes in with power and breaks that. It gives us the power we can't find in ourselves, but now God renews that within us through his spirit. And we now have this liberating power where the power of sin is broken over our lives. And that's exactly what it's doing here for the people in Nineveh. They're being liberated. They're turning from sin and they're turning to God. Now, don't write off repentance as an old word from the Bible from the past. Sometimes we can sit there, that just sounds like really old stuff. Is that, is that really true? Yeah, absolutely it's true. This is vital for your Christian living. It's vital for my Christian living. Repentance as the disciple of Jesus Christ is an absolute crucial part of our everyday life. Living in repentance. We are constantly turning away from those wrong desires and turning to the Lord. It's part of our life. But praise God, he gives us the strength and the beauty to do that. So don't ever write, oh, is that just some sort of old-fashioned thing? Isn't that something from 100 years ago or 500 years ago? No, 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 no. It's vital for our everyday living right now. Here's what we're going to see to help us down that pathway. What is God's heart here in the book of Jonah? Even as we see here with the people of Nineveh. Let's make no mistake of God's holiness. He does issue a warning to Nineveh and it's a judgment and it's coming in 40 days. This place will be crushed. But what does God do? do? He uses that warning as an act of grace. As a picture of his mercy. That the people of Nineveh would turn from their evil ways and now turn towards the Lord. That is the picture of God's heart here. It tells us in Ezekiel that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is not some sadist who just delights in actually just wiping people out. That is not God's heart. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, we're told. God's heart is a heart of grace. 
God's heart is to rescue and save those who cannot save themselves. What could they do in Nineveh? All they could do was call out mightily to the Lord. They had nothing else they could offer. God gives grace in hard places. That is God's heart here. Let me finish with this last question of the king, which I think is beautiful. Jonah chapter 3, verse 9. Two words. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows? The king doesn't quite know at this stage. He's just thrown it out there. Who knows? We read earlier there from Luke chapter 19 with Zacchaeus. He had met Jesus Christ on that road that day, climbed up the sycamore tree, and Jesus changed everything in Zacchaeus' life that day. Everything. Tax collector, rich, ripping off people left, right and centre. Zacchaeus in repentance says, I'm going to go back. Anybody I've defrauded, I'm going to pay them back. I'm going to fourfold. I'm going to do this wrong. You can just see the changed heart through Zacchaeus right there and then that's repentance working. That's the fruit of salvation. And look at what Jesus responds with in verses 9 and 10 there. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The king says, who knows? Who knows what God will do? I don't know, the king says. Who knows? Zacchaeus can tell us. For those who are believers today, we can tell the king as well that when we come before the Lord with this humble heart, seeking forgiveness, salvation comes to our house. Salvation comes to us as a person. Who knows? Well, we do know from the light of the New Testament. God forgives, God rescues, God saves, and God gives this beautiful gift of repentance, a transformed life, a renewed person now to live in the light of the gospel and to live in a way that is pleasing and attractive because of the loveliness of Christ that rolls out through us. Who knows? Jesus knows. Jesus saves and Jesus enables us to repent. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you today as we come again to Jonah chapter 3. God, it's just a picture of your grace. It's a picture of your beauty. It's a picture, Lord, of your wonderful mercies poured out upon a people who do not deserve this. Picture, Lord, your mercies poured out on a people who are not worthy of this. Lord, maybe there are some here today sitting here and they're thinking about all of the evil that they've committed in their minds, all the evil they've committed in actual deeds. God, maybe they're sitting here now filled with guilt, filled with shame. Maybe they're sitting here right now thinking, God would never want me. I'm not worthy enough. Help us to see again, Lord, as we look at the book of Jonah, as we see here, Lord, no one is worthy. No one deserves. No one can earn. You're the God of grace. You're the God who comes and says, just own your sin. Confess it. Bring it before me. Allow me to cleanse it with the blood of Christ. And then allow me to 
give you the gift of repentance. A new heart that now turns and turns and turns and turns every day towards the Lord. Holy Spirit, we pray, awaken our hearts to that day. Help us to see the grace that you are pouring out all over the people of Nineveh at this time. That we too can be recipients of that grace. Father, we ask that we pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you have enjoyed our Bible talk from today. If you have any questions or comments from today's talk, please feel free to contact us at info at exchangechurch.org.au. Also, we love to welcome new people at Exchange Church in person, so consider yourself invited to be with us.